0: We are going to get started. We have been in this whole series of what it looks like to be spiritually disciplined, and we've had some literature to go along with this sermon series. Hopefully you've gotten material in your hands, Disciplines of a Godly Man, Disciplines of a Godly Woman. And really, we start in the spring, and we're just kind of rolling through the summer. And some of the topics we've covered so far, if you miss it, you can go back and listen. Uh, We've talked about the discipline of a godly marriage, discipline of parenting, uh, probably my favorite, the discipline of the mind and what that looks like. You can go back and listen to that. The discipline of purity. And now we get to one that's really convicting for me personally. Uh, we are going to be talking this morning about the discipline of prayer. And so we're going we're to move kind of fast because there's a lot of stuff to cover. We're going to just ask a couple of basic questions and then look at the Sermon on the Mount to guide us in what prayer looks like. And so depending on your background... You come into this space, if you, if you have more of a liturgical background, uh, you are very familiar specifically with the Lord's Prayer, which is where we're going to be today. And so it's something, and, and this is how I grew up too, you really never entered into a church service without saying it once, maybe even twice. And it was just something that you never miss, and because that, that's how you pray. And so we're going to look at that closer today, uh, but I want to start, and I want to encourage you, I say this all the time, and, and I some of you do this, and some of you probably don't, and Because I can see you, I I know that that's true. I would encourage you to write a few things down about prayer. Uh, These are things that I've heard. These are things that uh, I've been meditating on and kind of just put in my phone in my own personal notes. And so there's just a reality that I think that if we were to survey everyone in the church and say whose prayer life is at a ten. A 10 being praying without ceasing, a 10 being, you know, praying for the hand of God to move and, and your prayer life is alive and active and fresh. If we were to say your prayer life, you know, zero to 10, how many people are at a 10? I'm not even going to do it because it's going to be too humbling as a pastor to, to get the response from that. But, but I, would, I would imagine that maybe you would get like one or two people in a service this size that would go, you know what, I might not always be at a 10, but I'm usually at a 10. And so this is personally convicting because I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that I'm always at a 10 either. But what I will tell you is this, that without prayer, that we are a crippled people, that we are crippled spiritually, and that we are limping along in our faith without prayer, alive and active in our life. And so the first question is this. There's only a couple. They're going to take a while to answer. There's going to be little subcategories to them. Uh, but I felt like these were the questions to answer. The first one being, write it down, fill it in. What is prayer? What is prayer? Simply defined as this. What is prayer? Prayer is communicating with God. Did that just blow your mind? You're like, man, I, I didn't know that. Okay. Prayer is communicating with God. And the ultimate goal of prayer, write this down as well, so we're all on the same page. The ultimate goal of prayer is building that relationship with God. So at the very beginning, God is relational. It's a triune you know, trinity of, of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three separate but equal, separate but one. It's this mystery of the trinity that no one can fully explain how it works. But they've been in this community since the beginning of time, relationally with each other. And so God creates us as his children to be in relationship with him, and when we're not doing that, then we're living in a way that's fractured. Prayer is, at its very basic level, communication with God. And communication includes two massive concepts that if you neglect either, you're missing it. The first being speaking to, and the second being listening. And I would imagine if I was to poll you guys as well, and including myself, that you would find that the latter is the more difficult. How many of you guys find this? Just maybe you could be vulnerable for a second. How many of you find it difficult to listen to God? To listen to him? And, and, and so that's why the word of God is so important because he speaks to us. That, that you have, if you are methodical and you are a good German, Midwestern person, you have your list, you have your routines. I was talking to Chuck this morning and he was telling me, man, if I, if I don't get this thing started right away, if I don't have this time set aside for God, then it kinda messes up my whole day and I have to orientate my whole day to this time of prayer before I ever leave my house and it has to be regimented. And we're gonna get to that in a little bit. It's gonna be very practical today. But in that, there, there is this red flag in a sense where we can speak to God But that doesn't always allow for the listening process. And so communicating is twofold. Communicating is speaking and listening. And in that process, it can take many forms. You could be standing up. You could be in a prayer closet. You could be kneeling before the Lord. Any of you guys like to pray and walk? Does anyone do that? I find that to be something enjoyable if I have the energy to to walk and and to actually exercise, right? That you have these prayer walks that you go on when you have this time that you have communication with God. And what's cool about God is he is God the Father, and he cares less about the where, and he cares less about even the how, and he cares most about because he's relationship relational he cares most about because we're his children about building that relationship and so we can take a variety of context he's not concerned really if you're walking and praying or if you're on your knees and praying or if you're in a prayer closet and praying it's not really the big idea the big idea is that god the father loves the children and he loves like any good father he loves hanging out with his kids and he will facilitate any process necessary for that to happen. So maybe if you're a father, you can relate to that—that that you have these things in your life that you partake in with your kids, so that you can have this relational aspect to your time with your kids. And so, uh, for me, growing up with my kids, that's that's been—you know—softball or basketball or lunch at school. And I've kind of broken away from that as they've gotten older. But even when they were in the public school before they went to Aberdeen Christian, uh, there was this time that I would set aside. And I would go and eat with them when they still thought I was actually cool. And so I'd bring them chicken nuggets on a 99-cent chicken nugget Tuesday. Or we'd go to Wiley or we'd throw a Frisbee. Last night I was throwing a Frisbee with my daughter. And she got tired of about two minutes. She said, I don't want to throw a Frisbee anymore. But it was this idea that we can talk and throw a Frisbee because she just got back from camp. And so that's how God is. Always happy to talk. Always willing to listen. And prayer is universal in the sense that if you're not a follower of Christ, and here's the exclusivity of gospel, then you're praying to a God that does not exist. But uh, I will say this, and in just working with people and counseling, uh, I, I've not met a lot of atheists in this area, and I've also not met a lot of people who have said that they've never prayed. It's something that kind of crosses the boundaries of different religions or people that really aren't even seemingly religious that that everyone would have on some level most people would claim to have either prayed before or have some type of prayer life and at the same time we would agree that we have this this area of our life that we need to improve and so here are a few things that I want you to write down Uh, number one write this down prayer is not something you have to do it's something you get to do Maybe another way of saying it is this, prayer is not or should not be burden giving, prayer should be burden lifting if you are doing it right. And if you're dreading praying, it's really exposing under a microscope something wrong in your heart. If you're going, man, I know I need to go to the Lord with this, but I don't want to. That What it's probably telling you is that you have this thing that's not of God that you've been holding on to, and you don't want to talk about it. And it's just like a normal relationship. You don't want to talk about it because if you talk about it, what? If you talk about it, then it's going to produce change that you don't want. And so it's exposing something in your heart. It's either a bad theology or bad motive or, or both. Here's another thing that I want you to write down. These are things that I've heard over the years that I've kind of just been collecting in my phone. I like this statement, and I want you to have it. Prayer is not informing, it's inviting. I'm going to say that again. Prayer is not informing. And here's the theology behind the idea. I know this is going to be shocking, but look at me when I tell you this. That thing that you don't want to talk to God about, look at me. That thing, you're not looking at me, That thing, Ann's not here till the second service. I can keep saying that, okay? That thing that you don't want to talk to God about, I'm going to blow your mind theologically. He already knows. He's omnipresent. And he's all powerful. And so that thing that you're going, man, I'm just going to hold on to this with a tight fist. He already knows. And so it's not just on a fundamental level, it's not about just informing God. It's not about that checklist in your life. It's inviting to him into what he already knows so that he can transform. So that he can be the relational God that he already is, but he can be that in your life. We're going to keep going back to the parenting idea because in the Lord's Prayer, the first thing, and we're going to nail this, we're going to talk about this for a few minutes in a little bit. The first thing is what? Our, Our Father our heavenly father. And so there is this parent analogy that keeps running through the vein of this conversation. Prayer is not informing. It's inviting. And so how, how many of you have kids and you can relate to this reality? You've done this with God. You th- they think that you don't know something. Give me some type of affirmation so I'm not sweating it up here. They think that you don't know something that you already know. Have you been there as a parent? It's not that you know, it's just that you know. I mean, it's not that, like, they told you. It's not even that their friends told you. But you were there once, and it seems to them like you were never their age. And maybe they're in high school, and, they, and they're just kind of getting distant. Or I'm not projecting my own situation, I, I don't think. But, but that happens where all of a sudden there's this tension that exists, and they think that they're fooling you. They're not fooling anyone, let alone you, because you've been there, done that. Can you track with that as a parent? Where they have this thing in their life, and they think they're fooling you, and they're not informing you, and they're not inviting you, and they think that because they're not informing you, and specifically they're not inviting you, that somehow, as a parent, that you don't already know. Let me, let me just tell you, if you're a teenager in the room, look at me. They already know. They might be in denial. They might not want to know, but they sense it. And God, being so much greater than us, he already knows. And so we invite him in. We don't just tell him things. We don't just say, you know, Here, here's the daily checklist. No, we're inviting you into the process of transformation because we believe that prayer is not just invo- informing, it's inviting. And, and that would be a core difference. If you want to know the difference between religion and relationship, religion loves to inform. Oh, God of hosts, Right? It loves to inform about the day. Thank you for this, and thank you for that. But it never wants to get more personal into inviting into the process of changing. Relationship is all about inviting God into the process. Religion informs, relationship invites. Here's another one, and then I'm gonna get to the text. Prayer is less about, and this is a bit theological in nature, and even a bit controversial, but I believe this. Prayer is less about, and I'm not saying it has nothing to do with, but I'm saying it has less to do with moving God's hand and more about moving our heart. Prayer is less about moving God's hand. I'm not saying that you know, his hand isn't moved by, by the prayers of his people. I believe that that happens as well. But I will tell you, just on a day-to-day relationship with Christ, that it tends to be more about moving our heart and then orientating our heart to his will in our life. And that's where the change happens. And what I mean by that is is God God is not a customer service rep. Do you know what that means? Like, we don't just you know, he's not a genie in a bottle're not we're not Aladdin and he's not the genie and in our prayers and this is the Lord's prayer we're about to get to, our prayers should be God centered they're all about him and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. We, we cannot even exist in the most minute way in the, in the cheapest meal, the highest carb meal of bread without you handing us that bread, handing us that manna in our life. And so prayer is less about moving God's hand because God's in control and it's more about moving our heart to get on the same page with him and do his will in our life. And he's a bad customer service rep. He doesn't just sit back and take orders. He's not our assistant. He'll take humble requests. And we'll see things changed by the power of prayer. But we should always have this idea of God that he's the one that's in control. And he's a good God and he's a good father. He's saying, I didn't create you to tell me what to do all the time. I'm here to change your heart and to get your heart in connection with my will and my heart, and we're going to move forward together. But make no mistake, make no mistake, I'm God, and I'm in control. So then from there, we have the Sermon on the Mount. Second question. How do we pray? How do we pray? There's some do's and there's some do nots, and he starts with the do nots. Matthew 6 Verse five, we're gonna gonna start with what he calls these hypocritical prayers. Jesus is preaching the greatest sermon that's ever preached, verse five. And he says this, he says, and when you pray, and just write that down, underline that, because it's not an if, it's a when. There's no like, maybe you should pray and maybe you shouldn't. But when you pray, you must not be like the, what? Hypocrites. No one wants to be a hypocrite in my experience. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues And on the street corners, so that they can have something. They can be seen by others. And so this is talking to the Jewish crowd right here. He says, truly I say to you that you've received, they've received their reward. But when you pray, this is his disciples, these are the people that are listening to him. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. He talks to this Gentile crowd. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And then he's going to say, pray like this. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But he's been, praying on, he's been preaching on anger and lust and divorce and loving your enemies, all those things that are really hard to hear 2,000 years ago and today. And he says, when you pray, not if you pray. And he gives a couple of warnings. The first one is this. He says, don't pray to be seen. And so I don't think that what that is saying, and and pretty much every commentary would agree on this. It's not even controversial. It's not saying uh, to, to not pray publicly. But what it is saying is that your public prayer should be an overflow of your private prayer. That there should be more substance to your prayer life than just those public prayers where you get that public recognition and you have that public facade that there should be an overflow of your private prayer and it should go a little deeper. I'm gonna step on some Lutheran toes and then this is how I grew up too. If your only prayer life is at dinner time, and you say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. You guys know it? Nothing wrong with it. And let this food to us be blessed. Right, we all know it. How many Lutherans? All right, how many Presbyterians? and Matthew? I'm not saying that that's bad. I mean, I prayed the same thing growing up. But my dad prayed that over barbecued chicken like 5,000 times. And he was good at barbecuing chicken, so maybe that's the secret sauce. I, I don't really know. But I'm telling you, if that's all there is to memorize this, it's even with the Lord's Prayer. You say it every church service to the point where you just, I remember being like in middle school and just being methodical. I could be asleep and pray that thing. And you pray it publicly, but it should be an overflow of your heart and your quiet time with God. I mean, here, here's a hard question Is the only time you pray in public? Is the only time you pray to just give a quick good night to God with your kids so your kids won't grow up pagan? You better pray with them because you're a dad or you're a mom. Or it's mealtime, so come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. And then you don't talk to him for, you know, to the next time you eat some chicken. That's not how it's designed. Or are you praying like Jesus is talking about to the hypocrites? Are you praying to reform? Second thing about this text that before we get into the the do's would be this if you want to know how to pray, then very simply, and we're going to close with this idea as well, don't be someone that you're not. You guys ever heard those prayers? Right? How weird is it? Look at me again. How weird is it when you've known someone for like 10 years, and then you pray with them, and you open your eyes, and you go, I don't know that person. You don't have to. I heard a pastor say last week, you don't have to downshift into the King James. All of a sudden, you hear them pray, and you're like, they don't sound anything like that in real life. I don't even think I recognize that person. If you sound unrecognizable when you pray, something's wrong. And so he says, don't don't be like that. And then Jesus says to this crowd that he's preaching to, he says, this is how you pray. This is what we've been reciting in church for now a couple thousand years. Verse 10, he says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name. That's holy is your name. Great is your name. Most of us know it. You can say it with me. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. He says in verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is a hard part of the sermon that gets overlooked. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. The next piece of that is is—it's what's really critical. If you don't, there's also implications to that reality as well. And so here's how you don't pray. You don't pray to be put in the middle of the spotlight, and this is how you do pray, and we're gonna break this thing down. Here's how you pray. You pray to God as Father. You pray to God as Father. That's intimate, that's personal, that's relational. That's very deeply theological. If we miss that, we miss the rest. If you don't understand what a good father is, we'll get to this too, you will never pray if you don't believe you're welcome in the Father's presence. In fact, Jesus, on a couple of instances, brings children to him, right? And he says to what? He has, says to have a childlike faith, not a childish faith, because a childish faith is different than childlike faith. A childish faith is immature, a childish faith because kids are selfish. A childish faith is, is selfish in nature, but a childlike faith is innocent, that would be a massive distinguisher. We pray to God as Father, we're the child, and we pray to Him with this innocence that He loves, this faith that He loves. Kids will believe all sorts of things that they maybe even shouldn't believe. You could tell them there's a tooth fairy until until they're a certain age, uh, like my kids, until they're like 15, then they'll stop believing in the tooth fairy. That wasn't funny. I thought that'd be funny. That's not funny. I'm not gonna say that second service. That, you guys just tested that out. That bombed, right? Kids will believe anything when they're loved. They'll believe in the the Easter bunny. They'll believe in Santa Claus. It's because they have this innocence to them. There's this childlike faith as we pray to God the Father. And if we want to learn how to pray, and one of the most beautiful things about parenting is that on some levels, uh, we teach our kids, and that's what we're called to do. But then on other levels, just watching our kids. We forget what it's like to be kids, and they can teach us some things too, can't they? One of the things they can teach us in their innocent faith is how to have a pure heart. If if you want to know how to pray, in fact, I think this is actually worth writing down. I just wrote it quickly, but I I think this is actually worth something here. If you want to know how to pray, look specifically to a child who is loved and cherished by his or her father. And then look to that safety valve that they have that innocence that they have, where they know that their dad is gonna protect them. They know that their dad who loves them and loves God can be told anything and it's okay. They have this innocent faith about them because when a child is loved and feels safe with their father, they have no problem communicating in a way that's safe because they don't have that intrinsic fear of rejection in their life. So they can go to the Father, and and that's what we look to. That's what it means to start the Lord's Prayer with, our Father in heaven. They're not scared to run to him. And of course, what we talk about a lot at New Life is the fact that 40% of people can't even relate to that because tonight in America alone, 40% of all people are going to bed without a father actively present in the home. That the majority of children being born to women under the age of 30 are being born out of wedlock. And so I want you to think with me for a second about how this then confuses the process of how we view the father. If the whole paradigm is our father in heaven and we have this bad or non-existent relationship with our earthly father, then to think that that somehow doesn't come into play is naive. Or even you have a father in a home but you have this warped view, depending on the type of father that you have, because you spend so much time living in the world and living with media around you that you have this view of dads, or 40% of us are going to bed across America without dads, and so now we're being told what a father is like. And we're being told by a lost world around us that's convoluting the process. There's something in sociology known as the cultivation theory. And it comes into play with this idea of fatherhood in that, here's what cultivation theory is. When you're not familiar with something, then media takes over and cultivates you for what they feel you should feel is normal. And so when we say things like, the world tells you that, that's what we mean. Sociologists have taken that, and Christians would say, well, the world tells you this, and the world tells you that. Sociologists would say, oh, that's just a larger part of cultivation theory. And they're right. Here's what it is. It's we are going to tell you what is normal, and we're going to tell you what's acceptable, and we're going to cultivate that into your thinking, even in a subconscious level. And so they've been very effective in doing this, mainly because of the time that they have with our kids. The average Christian, the good church-going Christian, goes to church about two times a month. And so if kids are in church listening to the gospel— and the pastor doesn't talk too long. They're hearing about 30 minutes twice a month. They're hearing about an hour of sermons a month. Just, just out of curiosity, how, how many hours do you think they're, they're spending uh, between television and social media a month? In the hundreds. Everyone's looking at me like, well, you're the pastor. Just tell us, okay? It, it's like, I think it's like 300. 300 hours to one. It's so, so I hope that we're taking this time seriously. And so all of that is being cultivated into the view of the father. There's this study, all that to say this, there's a study done in West Virginia. It was a massive, massive study. It looked at father-child interactions from popular situational comedies from 2000 to 2010. They studied over 700 father-child interactions in 10 situational comedies. The number one consumer in these studies of screen time were kids 8 to 18 years old. And so they looked at all of this, and there's this scary statistic and this cultivation of who the father is, and so how we see our earthly father, and then how we, because it's a projection of how we view our heavenly father, and this is what they found on the data points, that they scored positive and negative interactions in demonstrations of fatherhood. And the lowest, the lowest scoring, the most negative interactions in fatherhood came from parents, where the father was in the home in these situational comedies, blue-collar dads specifically. Blue-collar dads had the most negative interactions, and then the most common saving point was either mother, child, or even with some Disney shows, the pet saves the day. Worst interactions, most incompetent fathers were the hard-working dads who stayed in the home and raised their kids. I'm about to say something that's wildly controversial if you like controversy. This is not my opinion, this is the data. The highest scoring of fathers were gay fathers on sitcoms. They had the most positive interactions with their kids. And those guys that are, they're in the trenches, blue collar guys working hard for their ham- families over and over again are portrayed and cultivated in culture in 700 interactions as negative. And so the Bible paints this entirely different picture of fatherhood, and it points to God saying, God is our father, and our father is good, and our father is competent, and our father has our best interest in mind. He says, pray to God as father, he says, pray to God as holy. Write that down. Hallowed be your name. That's, that's all it that means. Is holy is your name. Did you know that the most common reference to God's character and nature in the Old Testament and the New Testament is holiness? It's your kingdom. It's your will. Hallowed be your name. Everything is about you. Everything is for you. Holy is your name. This, this is how I'm communicating with you. I'm recognizing who you are in my life. He Says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a hard prayer. How many of you guys haven't wanna pray that? You already have your lists for God. Is, is everyone awake? I know it's almost July, but that's just me. That's not you, that's just me, okay? I'll just, I'll just talk about me. I have this list that I give to God and I would much prefer if he doesn't tweak it or change it much. Tracking? I mean, he can maybe change the small things like my plans after dinner a little bit. But, but not the big things. God is going to say no to things in our lives. God is going to say no to some things in our lives because he loves us too much to say Yes. And so we come to him humbly and we say, even though this pains me to say this to you, I'm praying for your will, not just as a public prayer, because everyone prays for God's will in public, but you know that thing that I've got a tight fist on that I've clenched on tight to, you know that thing that's become a functional savior in my life, and I don't wanna give that to you, but I am gonna trust that you are the one in control that you have reins over my job, you have reins over my marriage, you have reins over my children, you have reins over my finance, and I am going to pray this prayer to you, and I'm not just going to say it, I'm going to mean it, and it's the secret to watching now my spiritual life thrive, and it's the secret to watching my mental health and emotional state thrive, where I now recognize even those things I don't want to give to you, that I believe in my heart you genuinely have my best interest in mind, and I am going to relinquish control because I make a horrible savior. I was never designed to be the savior of the universe, and so I'm going to relinquish those things to you. And here's the secret. You will never have freedom. Write this down. I will never have freedom until I say in my prayer life, and mean it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. My kingdom come, my will be done, makes for bad marriages. My kingdom come, my will be done makes for horrible parenting. My kingdom come, my will be done has all sorts of negative side effects because it was never meant to be that way. And so the prayer is this, and this is something I heard this week. I love this statement. It's so simple, but for me, I was praying it before I got up here to preach. I was sitting in my office, I turned off the lights, and I was kneeling down in my chair, and I said this to God, and I meant it. I said, I want what you want, and if I don't want what you want, Help me want what you want. That was my prayer this morning. I heard someone else pray it. I thought, I'm going to bring this prayer to the church. I'll say it one more time. I got, God, I want what you want. And if I don't want what you want, then help me want what you want. Because my kingdom come and my will be done. <laughs> what was that? My kingdom come, my will be done, is a horrible prayer with all sorts of horrible side effects. Pray for God's provision in the bread. Pray for God's forgiveness on you and pray that he would allow you the heart to forgive others. Relinquishing this control in our lives, what a beautiful prayer of submission. One way to always keep God at an arm's distance is to allow him to forgive you And then to hold on to grudges in your heart towards other people. That'll always keep God at this arm's distance in your life. You'll always have these emotional prison walls up as a byproduct of that. And so here's how we're going to close this thing out. I just want to give you a few practical suggestions. I got these actually from a Desiring Desiring God conference in 2009. And there was a pastor that just spoke wisdom into the life of the people. And it was really, he's an older guy who's just kind of pouring out at that last stage of ministry, his wisdom on his church at this conference. And he said this, here's how I pray. And I thought, man, I was listening to this in a men's study, and it was so impactful. Kelly Brennan sent it to me. I listened to it six times. And it's simple, but I thought this is something that we all need to hear as we close this thing out together. And so the the practical suggestions will go like this. Uh, Talked to Chuck about this this morning as well. Ran it by him. Number one, set aside a time each day to pray. All right, here's why you pray. Here's how you pray. But none of that matters if you don't do what? If you don't pray. Right? You can have this beautiful theology behind it, but you actually have to do it. And so what this pastor said is this. He said, I have to set a time each day to pray. That, that I can't leave at the chance because there are too many good things that become bad things because they get in the way of my prayer life. The way that he said it was this: there are there are all sorts of righteous emails that I could send off that seem like good things and good distractions, but they're bad things because they're not my top priority. And so I have to set a time aside each day to pray. He said the devil defeats most prayer before it happens because we didn't make it a priority. That if you don't set this time aside, and this is why we're going through this idea of spiritual disciplines. If you don't set this discipline's time aside for God, that you'll find a ton of good things to do to keep you from praying. How about this idea that, that sin, sin can keep you from praying, but sin isn't always the catalyst that keeps you from praying. It's not those sinful things that keep you from praying as you grow in your faith. It's righteousness or seeming righteousness that keep you from praying. You can find about 50 other things that seem worthy of your time, but if it's taking away from that foundational time that's driving the rest of your life and communication with God so that you can take the mind of Christ on, then those good things become bad things. Set aside time each day to pray. Pick a place and pick a time and show up. Pick a place and pick a time and show up. Here's a second piece of advice. This is just practical advice. Uh, I I don't know about you guys, but I get distracted real easy, almost on a level that's embarrassing, and so this was really important for me, because I I don't know about you, but I'll go about five minutes in, and then I'm like, squirrel, anybody? God, thank you, man, I just got this time with you. I woke up, and I am sitting in my office, I'm sitting at my desk, and then I can think about the dumbest thing ever. And all of a sudden, I thought I was praying, and then I'm thinking about, you know, like the NBA draft or something like that. And what he said was this. Number two, combine prayer and Bible reading together. Specifically, number one, because God's communicating through that Bible. But specifically, if you have a hard time, if you're self-diagnosed, ADHD, right? The doctor didn't say it. You just know it's true, right? your brain has a hard time holding a train of thought for any length of time without the specific help from God's Word. It, it literally is like that in my life. You know, God, thank you for this. I would just like to lift up my child to you who's doing this, or my marriage, or, you know, this person in church who's got this plate in their life, and then literally it's like squirrel. I mean, I could just all of a sudden, or someone knocks on me, or whatever it is. Set aside a time and a place to pray and combine that prayer with Bible reading because the more you combine the truth of God's word with your prayer, the longer you will tend to be fine that you can focus in on what God's calling you to focus in on. And so you're praying, you're reading, you're praying, you're reading. It doesn't have to be two separate entities in your life. You're praying, you're reading, you're praying, you're reading, and you're memorizing the word of God in your life and you're soaking it in Here's something I never would have thought of because it's too big of a word for me to understand, but I had to look it up, and I asked Siri what it meant. Here's the third one, and we're going to close. Pray in concentric circles. And so I said, hey, Siri, that's brilliant. What's a concentric circle? I just said that and my iPad lit up. Siri's on there. Siri, I'm good. Never mind. The definition of a concentric circle is a circle with a common center. And so you have this theme to your time with the Lord. Maybe you're praying for humility. And you can work out or you can work back in. And so at the core level, it's you. God, make me humble. Give me a humble and contrite spirit before you. God, I pray for humility for my children. I pray for humility for my wife. I pray for humility with the elders at New Life. I pray for humility in the body of Christ. I pray for a spirit of humility in the community of Aberdeen, South Dakota, that we would humbly come before you and we'd repent and we'd turn to you. You see what I'm saying? You can work from the outside in. You can pray for humility for your leaders and for your world leaders and for what's going on in Peru at New Life. Or you could start all the way from the outside. It doesn't really matter. God knows everything. He'll adjust to what you're doing, right? He gets it. God, we just pray for the world that there be a spirit of humility on it and by the end of your prayer, you're saying, God, start with me. You know my heart. You know where I fall short of this idea. Pray in concentric circles and then I'll just close with this thing one more time. Pray without pretense. Pretense is this. It's an attempt to make something that is not the case appear to be true It's defined as a false display of feelings, attitudes, or intentions. God already knows. God already knows the walls that are up. God already knows that our public prayers can look a lot more polished than anything we're doing in private. And he does not expect perfection because he already sent his son to die for that perfection. We are placed, that perfection is placed on us. That's the gospel. But what he does want is a humble heart that doesn't have this pretense to it. For the last 17 years, New Life has been driving away at this vision of reaching the community that's in and reaching other communities with the gospel. And so a lot of people have that vision. But one of the things that are unique about our vision is we truly have tried to do that in a way that doesn't have a lot of pretense and religious religiosity to it. That we want to be humble, and that we want to be a people that are multiplying the disciple-making process. And I can tell you this now, 17 years into this ministry, no one likes pretense. And the people that do like pretense are the people that we should run from because they are going to be a cancer to this disciple-making process. Pray without pretense because God already knows Jesus loves his church, and he wants to have this humble communication that we give to him as he then unlocks the keys to the gospel going out in and through us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a prayer life that we have but needs to improve. And so there's different people in the service. Some people, maybe they don't know you as Savior. I would just ask that you would open their heart to the gospel that the reason they're not communicating with you is because they don't know you at all. In fact, when I start talking about being religious, they're like, man, that, just God, you opened up my heart. I'm just religious. I don't know you. I'm jumping through these hoops, but I don't know you at all. And I would just ask, Lord, that in this time that you've opened their eyes to the gospel and that supernaturally they have this understanding that I'm a sinner in need of saving and that I'm broken and I can't fix myself. And Jesus, I believe in this moment as I've heard this sermon that I desperately need you to forgive me of my sin. That I'm going to stand in judgment for my sin. But I believe you died on a cross in my place for my sin. That you are the only way to heaven. And I believe upon you for salvation this morning. I believe that you died on a cross. That you rose from the dead. And so that I can go to heaven with you. But I can be in relationship with you. Not just in the future but in the now. And I can have an active and living prayer life in the now. So I believe upon you. God for the rest of us that already know you. Jesus is Savior. We pray that you would take this time and you would use it, and you would use it in a powerful way to give us a fresh vision for what healthy communication with you looks like. We love you as the Father. We pray these things in your name, and everybody said, Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.